Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to SEAC Stories. This podcast is brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. This podcast tells the stories of our members exploring and sharing their research in and across the region. I am Natalie Pearson. The biggest story of 2020 is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. It's affected all of us in different ways, and as today's guest points out, can be considered from the perspective of almost any academic discipline. Today, we're going to take a look at the impact of COVID from a geographer's perspective by exploring the ways in which COVID-19 affects place, space and movement. To help us do that, I am joined by Phil Hirsch, Emeritus Professor of Human Geography at the University of Sydney. Phil is speaking to us today from his home in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where he is now based, and we might have the occasional dog barking in the background. Phil is somewhat of a legend at the university, having taught here from 1987 to 2017, and he is known for his language proficiency. He's fluent in Thai and Lao, speaks intermediate Vietnamese and elementary Khmer. He has written extensively on environment, development, natural resource governance, and agrarian change in the Mekong region. Next year, University of Washington Press will publish his co-edited Turning Land into Capital, Development and Dispossession in the Mekong region. Phil, welcome, and what a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Natalie. Very good to be here. You've described COVID as both a global phenomenon as well as something that has tied us to localities in a way not experienced for a very long time in our increasingly connected and mobile world. What particular insights can a geographer's lens bring to thinking about this global and local phenomenon? Well, as you introduced the uh, subject, of course, COVID-19 is something which uh, has something in a research sense for so many disciplines. It's an economic phenomenon. It's obviously a public health phenomenon. It's a governance phenomenon. Geographers are interested in part because of our longstanding uh, concern with the way in which global processes interact with very local ones. And the global local connect is, is something which is really central to the concept of scale in, in geography. One of the fascinating things about the COVID-19 phenomenon is that it's inherently global in nature. I, I can't think of any crisis that has so rapidly come onto the global stage and has affected everyone in every corner of the earth. And yet it's also something which has in a very dramatic way, tied people to place, whether it's their homes in Sydney or their places of work, if you're a migrant worker in Bangkok or uh, someone stuck at the border, uh, which is suddenly closed. It fixed uh, people in in place. And so uh, for geographers in a world which we've come to understand as increasingly mobile, uh, this sudden break in mobility, uh, everything shuddering, to a halt in terms of international movement across borders uh, of people in any case, is something that brings this sort of global, local, local dynamic into very sharp focus. Can you think of any other phenomenon that is both global and local uh, in scope uh, in recent memory that is at the same scale as COVID? Well, of course, we have issues of environmental change, which people experience very uh, locally, uh, it has to do with their immediate surroundings, and yet we also increasingly think of environment as a 
fundamentally global phenomenon, particularly in the context of climate change. But this is something that's evolved over a period of time, continues to evolve. I think the really crux of COVID is that it hit us so fast and really turned uh, people's lives upside down in a way that nothing else uh, has in, in recent memory. Yeah, absolutely. So you've already mentioned migrant workers, and I'd like to turn to this now as part of a project that you're working on, a wide-ranging review of the implications for COVID-19 for migrant workers across the Asia-Pacific. And this project is funded by USAID. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. So this is a project that involves a very small team, just five of us, uh, who were invited by uh, USAID to conduct a study over three months from September through to it's coming December. Uh, that's really an overview of the way in which COVID-19 has affected migrant workers in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, it's huge in scope, covering the region that it does, uh, but it's also one that's multidimensional. It involves four main themes on governance and rights, on gender, on public health, and on environment. And each of us in the team is taking one of those themes, and we're also bringing in our own a sub-regional specialisation. And it's worth mentioning, of course, that the usual caveats apply that all the findings and recommendations that we might be talking about throughout this podcast are those of the researchers and not necessarily of USAID. It's a big project. Can you tell us which particular area and which particular lens and elements you're using to uh, examine this question of the impact of COVID-19 on migrant workers? Uh, first of all, we're all working as a, as a team and, and we're, we're recognising the sort of inter- interactive nature and the multidimensional nature of, of the way people experience COVID. My own area of focus, the area I've been asked to look at in particular, is environment, which also includes uh, questions of access to land and natural resources. And my sub-regional area of focus is the sub-region I'm most familiar, which is the mainland Southeast Asia or Mekong region. Given the limitations on travel at the moment, um, how are you conducting the research? Have you got collaborators and contacts and colleagues in all the different spaces that you're working in? Yeah, so I guess something to emphasise is this is largely a desk-based study. There's an extraordinary amount of work uh, going on in different countries uh, looking at various dimensions of the impact of COVID-19 because it is such a key part of people's lives and concerns uh, today. So... We're relying uh, first and foremost on existing reports, media reports, on some early published findings in academic journals, many international agencies, particularly, for example, the International Organization for uh, Migration has done some very good and very early work uh, on the phenomenon. And uh, then we're supplementing that with a number of interviews with key people in particular countries. The way the study is is framed is that we uh, have an overview report, uh, but then we're doing nine what we call corridor studies. And the corridor studies are studies that are more place-specific, that are looking both across and within borders at uh, paths of migration. So, for example, I'm doing three of those. Um, I'm doing a, a study of Myanmar migrants coming to Thailand, Uh, of migrants within Cambodia uh, and also uh, within the small Pacific island state of Tuvalu. Uh, So, as I said, that's mostly uh, based on existing documentation, uh, but supplemented by talking to people 
in-country, uh, some of whom are researchers, some of whom are activists, some of whom are uh, working with international organizations uh, who have a more immediate uh, experience instead of insights into the ways in which uh, the pandemic uh, has affected migrant workers. So you've just mentioned these corridors of mobility and migration. Were they in place before COVID and, and people are moving as a result of COVID or were they in use before COVID hit? Now, these, these, these corridors are corridors of migration that are longstanding, that were in place before COVID, but along which uh, the uh, shutdowns, the border closures and so on that have resulted from the pandemic uh, have disrupted that movement. So the corridors are existing paths of migration. And in some cases, COVID has uh, led people to return to their to their home country or to their home villages in the case of internal migration. In other cases, it's stranded uh, migrants. In other cases, migrants have chosen to stay uh, at their place of work, even if they've lost work with the idea that they want to hang around until the uh, economy starts to open up because the costs of moving are, are, are very high and there are uncertainties as borders close about whether uh, migrants are going to be able to return to the jobs on which they come to depend in other countries or other parts of their own country. I'd like to turn now to some of the early findings of your project, which is already well underway now. And one of these is that in mainland Southeast Asia, the economic fallout from COVID-related measures has been more consequential than the health impacts of the disease itself. And one thing that this suggests is that the measures taken by governments in Vietnam and Thailand, for example, have been pretty effective. But what are the implications for the livelihoods of the poor and for the people whose existence was already precarious even before the pandemic hit? Well, indeed, as you say, mainland Southeast Asia in particular is seen as an outstanding success in terms of the uh, containment of the virus. Whether that's down to sound government policy or whether it's a, a more cultural and local response is a Another question, for example, in Thailand, where I'm based, one of the outstanding success has been the system of village health volunteers, uh, which has been around for a very long time, for the last 40 years or, or so, but has really come into its own uh, with uh, COVID in terms of giving people information, monitoring what's going on, and so on. So in effect, in, in Vietnam, in Thailand, and most likely in Laos and Cambodia, there is little to no local transmission. There has not been for several months, and there's no other region of the world where things have seemed so rosy or or sort of light on in terms of the public health impact of COVID. But, and this is a big but, the economic impact has been devastating. Uh, Thailand, if we look at a crude economic figure, is looking at something like an 8% decline in its gross domestic products this year. And of course, all countries around the world are facing problems, but it's been particularly difficult here. Um, one of the reasons is that Thailand's economy depends heavily on tourism, between 15 and 20% of GDP and of employment is related to the tourist sector. And there is no international tourism in Thailand. Uh, so the impacts are particularly heavy in uh, localized areas like Phuket or Chiang Mai, and uh, loss of jobs. And many of those jobs are jobs that themselves have been taken and and filled by uh, migrants, uh, migrants from uh, elsewhere within Thailand and also uh, migrants from uh, neighbouring countries, uh, Myanmar, 
Laos and Cambodia in particular. Uh, so the uh, impact uh, for the poor in particular uh, has been very, very hard. In Thailand, the lockdown was in March and April, and that really contained the outbreak. Uh, to date, uh, there are still fewer than 4,000 total cases of COVID in Thailand from beginning to now, and altogether 59 deaths. So compared to other countries, uh, it's been a, a relatively uh, light impact, but the economic impact has been enormous. The exception in mainland Southeast Asia is Myanmar, which has, since the beginning of September, uh, seen what they call a second wave, and in some ways it's really a first wave because the initial impact in Myanmar was quite low, at least as far as it was monitored. Uh, but Myanmar uh, now has a thousand or more new cases every uh, every day, which is in stark contrast, and that creates uh, a lot of tension along the border because of the uh, length of the border between Thailand and uh, Myanmar. Uh, there's very heavy monitoring, particularly at the uh, normal crossing points like Three Pagodas Pass or uh, Mesot or Putnamron on the western border of Thailand between uh, Thailand and Myanmar. Perhaps we could turn now to what, this question of why migrant workers as a group are particularly vulnerable. Um, we saw in Singapore, and I, I know Singapore's not something that you're looking at in great detail, but we saw in Singapore they seemed to have it under control, but then COVID broke out in the migrant worker dormitories. Why is it the migrant worker group that is particularly vulnerable? Well, I think the Singapore case is really important in itself, but also uh, as a kind of lesson and warning uh, and indicator of why more attention needs to be paid to migrants. The reason for the uh, outbreak in Singapore uh, was a kind of complacency among Singaporeans and Singapore government that they had the pandemic under control uh, and a neglect of the fact that conditions are very different between migrant workers and the rest of the the population in terms of access to healthcare, in terms of knowledge, uh, access to information, uh, in terms of uh, social security benefits, and in particular, in terms of living conditions. So migrants everywhere tend to live in very crowded conditions, often in dormitories, uh, sometimes in more makeshift shelters in construction camps and so on, which makes them vulnerable. But what this has highlighted, not just for Singapore, but for the rest of the re region, is to look really seriously, not only uh, in the immediate context of COVID, but also uh, over the longer term, uh, at ways in which long-term migrants in countries that depend on their labour can be given more equal treatment uh, when it comes to health, to services, to knowledge, to information, and indeed to sanitary uh, and less crowded living conditions. Yeah, that's such an important point because, as you say, this complacency in Singapore, but perhaps in other areas too, as you say, perhaps this complacency comes from a sense that the migrant workers are not really people, that they're sort of this invisible workforce that do not receive due consideration uh, and now we're seeing the effects of those sort of attitudes um, manifesting as a result of COVID. Absolutely. In, in Thailand as well, where I'm uh, living in, the country which I'm most familiar, uh, Thailand is a country which in the global public health circles is, is often seen as a kind of model, not only for the village health volunteer system I talked about, uh, but also in giving health insurance options to migrants, both uh, registered and informal uh, migrants. So in some ways, 
uh, Thailand serves as a kind of model, and yet so many people slip through the net. Uh, sometimes it's because employers don't want to do the paperwork. Sometimes it's because migrants don't get access to information. Uh, sometimes, in particular with unregistered migrants, it's because of a concern that any interaction with formal processes exposes them to being expelled from their jobs and from the country. Something which is a concern not only in Thailand but in many other countries is that for the registered migrants, uh, their registration normally ties them to a particular employer, and that makes them particularly vulnerable to the uh, whims and wants of that employer. Uh, and so, in thinking about the ways forward, we're not only looking at improved social security systems and governmental action, but we're looking at rights issues in terms of migrants having similar employment contract rights. Uh, rights even to move between employers as any regular citizen of a country would have. Uh, but these are all uh, things that are not really new uh, issues, it, but which COVID has, has really brought into sharp relief. This is something which our study and other studies uh, that we've been learning about uh, through the research have come to, I think, a kind of consensus on that, sure, there are very dramatic and stark impacts of COVID, but perhaps the most significant thing about COVID is that it's bringing into relief injustices, inequalities that are longstanding and that have been kind of invisible, like the uh, migrants themselves. Uh, and what COVID is doing is making visible many aspects of precarity or precarious existences, uh, which in the past have been hidden. So if we're looking at the way forward, the way out of COVID, building back better, uh, one of the positive things that can come out is to uh, learn more about the vulnerabilities, the precarities, about the ways in which migrant lives can be made more resilient, uh, helping across the migrants, but also the societies from which they come and the societies that they're serving through their labour. That's just such a powerful point you've made there. And in a way, I'd like to wrap up the podcast here because it is so powerful what you've just said about exposing the impact of COVID on the precarious and the vulnerable and the implications for how we, how we deliver justice, I suppose, to these communities in the future. But there is one more question I want to ask you, and that is on the topic of urbanisation, which is something that we're seeing a lot of in Southeast Asia. And we tend to assume that with greater urbanisation access to land becomes less important. With people moving to cities, their livelihoods are less dependent on the land. Can you tell us how COVID has disrupted these assumptions about urbanisation and access to land? Yes, the question of access to land is really interesting. And I'll, I'll, I'll stick to the question of access to land in the rural areas from which uh, most migrants come rather than the, the equally uh, interesting but maybe uh, not so immediately relevant question of, of land in cities. So in the case of Thailand, a really interesting comparison that people are, are making is between the so-called Dom Yam Kung crisis in 1997, the financial crisis in 1997, when many migrant workers uh, went back to their home villages. Some of them even went back to farming. A larger number went back because they had the social support, the living areas with their parents or relatives, and that allowed them to sit out the crisis, the loss of income, loss of jobs, and so on. Fast forward 23 years later to 2020, and we don't see the same degree of uh, return 
The reason being in part that uh, people don't necessarily have land to go back to, but more significantly, the uh, migrants from within Thailand who are working in Bangkok and other urban centers now have never farmed, have never lived their adult lives in uh, rural areas. So there's kind of generational change. And uh, for them, it's partly uh, that they don't have access to land, but it's also partly the whole process of agrarian change and urbanization Uh, not just in terms of numbers, but also in terms of uh, livelihood skills. But in other countries, for example, in Cambodia, uh, which is one of the other uh, case studies that I'm looking at in in detail, access to land is fundamental. The government has told people early on, at least in the uh, pandemic, look, if you lose your job in a garment factory or you have to return from Thailand uh, or you can't remit money, just go back and uh, start farming again. In Cambodia, the movement off the farm is much more recent and people may have the skills, but they don't necessarily have the resources. Many people have mortgaged their land and lost their land. Many people never had formal rights to land uh, to begin with. Uh, the issue of land grabbing is uh, a big one in, uh, in Cambodia. Um, and therefore, the whole question of land as a safety net, as something to return to, is really fundamental in countries where the migrant dependence and migrant experience is more recent. There are even uh, starker examples in some countries in the South Pacific. I'm looking at Tuvalu, for example, uh, where there has been quite a significant move back to land and fishing livelihoods to what we might understand more traditional livelihoods. And the ability at least to ride out a crisis, not necessarily expecting that people are going to go back to becoming full-time farmers or fishers for the rest of their lives, but at least to carry them through means that land and access to natural resources remains in many ways much more significant uh, than we sometimes assume when we take a linear approach to development and assume that once people move to the city, that's it. And I think the phrase you used was this is like a livelihood cushion for them. If they can return to fish or to farm for a period of time, it almost becomes like a cushion in supporting their livelihoods. It does. I mean, there are also caveats to that. For example, uh, one of the specific areas I'm looking at in the Myanmar-Thailand corridor is a movement from uh, Tawoi to Bangkok. And Tawoi is uh, an area in uh, southern uh, Myanmar across the border from Thailand uh, where livelihoods have long been very dependent on fishing. But with the competition between shore fishers and uh, larger trawlers uh, which come inshore and uh, reduce the Uh, fishing, many people have at least sent one member of their family to Thailand and continued to rely on the diminished fishing income. The issue now with COVID-19 is not just the continuing decline in the fishery itself, uh, but it's also been the closure of markets and the closure of borders, which means that the price that fishers are getting for their product has been reduced very severely. So it's, uh, it's a combined impact that has really highlighted the impact of, uh, of COVID. Similarly, in Cambodia, if we look at uh, the, the town of Siem Reap, it's very interesting because this is a town which through Angkor Wat has become so heavily dependent on tourism, which has suddenly ceased. It's also dependent on remittances from migrant workers in Thailand and to some extent from migrant workers in garment factories in Phnom Penh, which have closed. Uh, and to add to all this, uh, This year has been the driest year ever in the uh, Mekong and the uh, flood that normally uh, results in the expansion of the Tanesap Lake, which is the 
uh, the world's largest uh, fishery on which millions of uh, rural Khmer depend. This has collapsed as well. So we see uh, combined effects between COVID and various environmental and economic uh, impacts. I think you've done an amazing job of outlining the impact of COVID and how it's really brought to light these pre-existing inequalities. And it's such an important project in, I guess, shining a light on people that are not given enough consideration when we're thinking about these sort of issues. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. And we really appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. You're very welcome, Natalie. Before you go, just a quick note that the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre will be taking a break for the Australian summer holidays. So this is our last podcast of the year. A huge thank you to our followers for supporting SEAC stories over the last few months. 2020 has not been the year any of us expected, and it has been challenging for many of us. So we really appreciate your continuing support and contributions to the SEAC community. We'll be back next February with a whole bunch of exciting new episodes where we'll be discussing everything Southeast Asia, from the trade of birds of paradise from the Dutch East Indies in the 17th to 19th centuries, to animal health surveillance in Timor-Leste to prevent future pandemics, LGBTQTI issues in Malaysia, reducing poverty with digital finance schemes in Myanmar, and plenty more. In the meantime, make sure to check our back catalogue and listen to some of our previous episodes. And if you haven't already, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us on social media. That's it for 2020. See you next year and happy holidays to those of you who celebrate. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.